Hello, we are back with the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I'm joined today for the first time with a return guest. Pastor Chris Wiley is with us. Chris, thank you for being here today. Well, I'm glad to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. And we were actually in person this time, which is not something I had the privilege of doing very much. But I want to talk today with Chris about a new book he's writing. Last time we talked about his most previous book, the How in the House of Tom Bombadil. But today we're going to talk about another book he's writing. Chris, would you tell us a little bit about? Uh, I know you got several projects, but but the one particular we're going to talk about today has to deal with communism. Yes, uh, or uh, and you know maybe the new totalitarianism. I'm still a little up in the air about the title that I will propose or. I've actually have proposed the first title, the one that includes the word communism, but I'm having some thoughts. And then one of the things that maybe people don't know is that you're not entirely in control of the title of your book. So the proposed title is, or the working title is, How to Defeat Communism in Your Spare Time. And uh, that's really a proxy. The the name communism has, has been a proxy in my mind for uh, what some people refer to as the new totalitarianism. So maybe it'll be how to defeat the new totalitarianism in your spare time, how to defeat communism in your spare time. But they're related. I mean, they're, they're, these, these are things that have uh, a kind of common family ancestry. So, Well, in the 21st century, everyone has spare time on yeah, their hands, yeah. it seems like. Yeah. So if you're, if you're going to give yourself to a pastime, it might as well be defeating the new totalitarianism yeah. rather than you know collecting something that is uh, not worth quite as much. So, right, right. so what is your working premise of this book? Uh, you know, maybe just you know, t- tell us what, what is this new totalitarianism? How does it contrast with the old type? And then what is your, your purpose really in, in pursuing this vein? Well, uh, in terms of uh, totalitarianism and its past, um, there is a uh, totalitarianism that it found expression most, I think, famously with communism, but, all, but also with National Socialism in Germany. They were two, uh, I guess, uh, versions of the same thing. That's something that might strike people as a bit odd because the ideology seemed to be uh, in conflict and in certain ways they were, but they had more in common with each other than most folks appreciate. But what you have with um, the appeal of totalitarianism in the past is you have a world in which we find ourselves, and this has been the case for some time now, uh, in which people have really lost kind of an intrinsic meaning when it comes to the you know life and its purpose. So. In the you know prior to uh, the modern era, you know modernity, it was understood that the world came front loaded with meaning. You know there was intrinsic meaning. Uh, being a man meant something. Being a woman meant something. Uh, a community uh, had an intrinsic meaning. The natural world was full of meaning. Uh, modernity more or less bleached the meaning out of things. Uh, the upside to that has been uh, a pretty rigorous systematic approach to understanding the physical character of the world and with the uh, idea that we can disassemble it and reassemble it in ways that 
make our lives easier. You know, things like air conditioning, automobiles, antibiotics, those are all great. You know, those, we, we have those things because of this modern turn. But what uh, was lost uh, is meaning. So you have a crisis of meaning in the modern uh, world and modernity, and totalitarian regimes uh, are inspired by ideologies and they impose meaning. Now, of course, that meaning has to be total, which means that everybody's on board. You know, it's sort of like, you remember those old Western films where the bad guy enters the bar and, when I drink, everybody drinks. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. My name is Adolf Hitler. When I think something is so, everyone has to think it's so. I'm Stalin. Everybody has. So if we're going to pull off this communal project of imposing meaning on a meaningless world, we all have to be on board. There's no room for uh, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, etc. We all have to be on board with this. Otherwise, we're not going to pull this off. So that's what totalitarian is, sort of generally speaking. There's a political expression, but there's also kind of intellectual life that goes along with that and so forth. But the new totalitarianism, what makes uh, the situation that we find ourselves in today both uh, more, I guess, disturbing, but at the same time, um, I think um, there, there's, a, there's actually a prospect that maybe these people could actually get a little closer to what they want to pull off done is in the in you know both uh, fascism particularly in uh, the expression that we see with the Nazis uh, and with communism you have the the mad guy sort of the you know the the demagogue you know this this uh, person who is just obsessed with bringing this to pass uh, who's ruthless uh, in pursuit of this uh, this vision, this utopian vision. Uh, today, we don't need the mad, we don't need the sort of the mad uh, scientist, so to speak, or the crazy political guy. Um, in fact, what we might find is a kind of spontaneous totalitarianism that emerges through the technology and through almost a kind of uh, a voluntary cooperation and sort of spontaneous joining of the, of, you know, sort of the uh, the, the, the larger project by just institutions everywhere you look, you know, educational institutions, even business corporations, etc. So there's not, no person or, or political party necessarily that's maniacally pulling strings or levers or pushing buttons. This is all kind of spontaneously emerging from what appears to be out of nothing. And, and you're like, what is going on? Uh, People are getting canceled, lives are getting ruined, careers are being put to an end. One thing to say about the new totalitarianism, at least at this phase, it has a cleaner, uh, less brutal, uh, physically brutal uh, uh, sort of uh, character. So uh, we're more You catch more flies with poison honey than with concrete and guillotines. Well, that, that's definitely the case, but also the optics are better. So, you know... I think one of the things that totalitarians learned in the past is that it's not a good thing for your cause to have a lot of, you know, uh, film with emaciated people <laughs> being discovered half naked in a in a concentration camp. It doesn't doesn't help the cause. <laughs> so the optics are better this time. Uh, they're very. Uh, I think the, the people who are uh, sort of helping this all along are very conscious of uh, public uh, opinion. 
and they know how to uh, sort of cover their tracks better, um, how to make it look more sanitary, more humane, that kind of thing. They look like they're giving people, well, they are giving people what they want. Yeah. Especially when you consider all the, all the apps, all the, the, the technological things that, that, that supposedly companies give you. You can sign up for this app, you can get it on your phone, and it's free. But actually, it's not free. Right. I mean, there's, there's the ads that they have, but it's more than that. They also have a lot of your information. Yep. Now, they, they, they're discovering what you like, and this is just one element to this, but, but, but that's one. But th then there's also, in the political realm, it's, it's a more passive-aggressive form. Yeah. They, they can easily save face when, you know, if, if someone ever tries to blow the whistle, a bureaucrat can say, well, they had a choice. Right. You didn't have to do this. Hey, you didn't have to, you know, get vaxxed, uh, even though it was going to cost you your job, you know, and perhaps your friends and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a, I, you know, that's a, a good point, um, and I think that's absolutely right. I think uh, there's plausible deniability always in the, in the, the, the sit, you know, sort of the, sort of the picture today. Whereas in the past, that you know might have been something that was factored in, but wasn't necessarily as high on the agenda. In fact, one of the things you you see in the literature, so there was a lot of things that were written uh, in the wake of World War II, and everybody was wondering what happened. How did that? How did you know? How did how could you know six million Jews or however many there were? You know, I know that some people debate the number, but I don't think anybody denies a bunch of Jews were murdered. <laughs> you know, and the same thing with the Soviet Union, you know, how many Ukrainians died in the, in the famines? You know, there's, you know, let, you know, there are people who actually get uh, really exercised about whether or not it was 30 million or only 20, you know. <laughs> but, but there was a lot of, a lot of death, you know. So, um, you know, with, with all of that, you know, you had uh, the audacity, you know, that was just, hard to believe and that was actually a, te a, a technique Hannah Arendt documents that what what you would have with totalitarians they would tell you exactly what they were going to do but because they, the, the actions were so aud audacious and horrible no one could believe they, they thought oh, it's just hyperbole you know they're, they're not actually going to try to kill all the Jews <laughs> they, but they said we will kill all the Jews. <laughs> you know, this, so they didn't hide it at all. In fact, that was part of the, that was uh, in a sense the genius of it. So like when I was a kid, I've got a confession to make. I wasn't always like a really good kid. I did things that were things that I would punish my kids for. <laughs> but one of those things is that you learned when you were stealing, as a, you know, when I was a kid, is audacity works in your favor. If you just you know, walk around with an air of confidence, people don't, you know, sort of think the worst. If you're sort of, you know, work, you know, sort of looking surreptitiously over your shoulder, if you're like, you know, very, uh, you know, appear very self-conscious, well, you are the, uh, the object of suspicion. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, this is like, you know, Catch Me If You Can, that film, you know, you just, you know, you, you go in, you, you act like you know what you're doing, and people more or less give you the credit well yeah he knows he knows what he's doing but that's what that's how those guys operated they were like this is what we're gonna do 
And everybody like, oh, it's just an exaggeration. They're just trying to play mind games. Like, and then they would do it. And then no one would believe it even after it was discovered to be the case. Right. <laughs> well, which is how the Soviet Union could go so long yeah. with defenders in the American and British press. I know, yeah. and I'm sure there was others, yeah. but I don't read other languages. So defending them, yeah. saying, of course not. They're really great. <laughs> they're, they're good people. Right, right. And they're just, they're, they're trying to pursue the good of their people in a different way. Right. But you hear the same thing from our politicians right now. Yeah. You know, I, I do think you see that particularly with uh, the World Economic Forum. You know, they will just say the craziest stuff or things that you assume are just totally crazy. And you say, well, they can't really mean it. No one really could b believe that that would be feasible. And then the next thing you know, they're shutting down the farmers in Sri Lanka and the Netherlands doing exactly what they said they were going to do uh, and, and, and possibly uh, in the process bringing about, you know, food shortages and stuff like that. We'll see how it all plays out coming up in next year's harvest. Right. So you mentioned Hannah Arendt. She is one thinker, philosopher who's, con I know, contributed in a significant way to this discussion. Who are some others who have influenced your thinking with regards to totalitarianism and who will probably show up in your book? Well, there's uh, uh, Matthias Desmet, whose recent book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, uh, it really does some, you know, he, in that book he has some great analysis uh, and he approaches the subject in a couple of ways that you don't see with, say, Arendt or others. But there, as you noted, her, Hannah Arendt and her great book, uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism, Another, another one uh, that's uh, a great read and isn't uh, a difficult read, it's not a very long book, is uh, The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. Yes. yes. Uh, that's He's great. a fascinating yeah. character in his own right. Yeah, I've got a theory about him, and I'll, I'll let you in on it in a minute. There, there's another one, Joost uh, 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 Merlou, who is a psychologist from uh, the Netherlands. I won't correct you on that. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea how that name is supposed to be pronounced, but it's J-O-O-S-T, and then a Merlou, M-E-E-R-L-O-O. -O. It's like, I, I couldn't believe it when I read it, it but he wrote a book entitled uh, The Rape of the Mind, and it's a study of uh, the techniques that were used by partic particularly the communists, but also the Nazis, uh, to break um, the will and to uh, more or less turn you into a puppet. Um, so those are, are a few uh, that come to mind. Another one, uh, 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 I think uh, Gustave Le Bon, uh, who wrote The Crowd, late 19th century. So he was an early, I guess, theorist of the psychology that we see in crowds. You know, at that point, he's reflecting primarily on the French Revolution. Uh, he, you know... He's kind of an interesting read for a range of reasons. Uh, one of those being that um, some of the things he has to say about um, social groups uh, and so forth would just not, you know, uh, be permitted to be published today. Right. <laughs> there are certain things you could get away with in the late 1800s right. that, that you can't get away with. Right. Well, you actually, you can't even get away with it. 60 years ago, much less right. now. Yeah, I think, I think it's right. 
but he's he's been helpful, and I'm continuing to you know poke into different you know places to see if there might be other material to work with. But the lay of the land is pretty, I think, um, easy to see. So the book I'm going to write, or I'm in the process of writing, it will have two parts. Essentially, a, kind of a, a philosophical, moral analysis uh, and political analysis of totalitarianism. Uh, sort of why are the conditions in our world today conducive to totalitarianism? What makes totalitarianism something new under the sun? Because it is. It's, a, it's something that could only have come about in the modern age. Obviously, we have tyrants in the past, right. you know, but it's a different kind of thing. It's not just simply a crazy guy. Right. You know, you know we, we, this is a, a, a very different uh, and more, I think, uh, ambitious project uh, when you're talking about totalitarianism. So that's the first half of the book, and the second half of the book will deal with, you know, what can you do? How do you respond? How do, you, know, how do you defeat this? And the title... Um, how to defeat communism in your spare time is actually uh, intended to say a couple things at once. One is totalitarians are people who themselves have become dominated by intellectually and even in the course of their lives an inhuman um, or uh, I guess a human human denying ideology. These ideologies are what they actually live for, and these ideologies have taken possession of them. And one of the best ways to defeat totalitarianism is to have a to have a life. <laughs> so you know, one of the things that you see with the history of totalitarianism is that essentially uh, the people who are driving the movements uh, don't really have much to live for. Um, they're kind of pitiful in certain ways. Um, they've got you know, big dreams, <laughs> but so did, uh, you know, uh, lots of cartoon characters that we make fun of. <laughs> right. Well, it, so it reminded me when you were talking about that just now of a story about someone who some on the left consider a totalitarian, in which the left does not consider many people that, but the um, late dictator of Spain, Francisco oh, yeah. Franco, yeah. which I'm not claiming him for sainthood at all. But I remember a story uh, Stan, uh, Dr. Stanley Payne told in one of his books on Spain during the Franco era. He said that an out, an out of the country correspondent was interviewing a Spanish fisherman. And this, of course, this, this press agent was very much a man of the left, and he's talking to this poor Spanish fisherman, and he's he's asking him. He said, "Don't you care about politics?" He said, "What's he said? I, I, doesn't it disturb you the oppression that you face?" Which is really rich, considering where it was coming from. But the fisherman said, "Franco takes care of the politics, so I can take care of my fishing." Yeah, yeah. Which is the opposite. Right. of what you're talking about right. when I mean th th this displays an attitude that was more common uh, at, at least at the time in that country that th the people were not as politically minded but they could enjoy what they were doing whereas a, total a true totalitarian wants everyone 
marching lockstep. Well, totalitarians uh, believe that everything is politics. The what you think is politics, uh, the way your home life is ordered is politics. Uh, the more traditional understanding, the classical understanding, is there are pre-political institutions. And what that implies is that the world comes front-loaded with meaning. You know, so the world comes front-loaded with meaning. That means that my relationship to my wife is a pre-political institution. We're married. Now we can engage in political life, but what political life is understood to be is how do we order our common life as the city. So the city, the polis, uh, or the country, if we take it to the next level, is something that we deliberate uh, over and uh, try to uh, order in a way that's to everyone's best, in, you know, you know, serves everyone's best interest. Of course, there are going to be classes, there are going to be disagreements, there are going to be, there's going to be conflict, and uh, a political order is an environment in which those disagreements can be uh, debated and, and uh, compromises can be reached, hopefully, and so forth. But that's not uh, uh, a totalitarian outlook. A totalitarian outlook uh, is predicated upon the idea that there is no front-loaded meaning, that the political order is political from front to back, from the inside of your head to, uh, you know, the, the, the halls of power in the Politburo or whatever. So uh, there are no boundaries. Everything is in play. And, and we see this kind of thing on the left all the time, particularly with the idea that the personal is political. So that's a classic totalitarian stance. So often the feminists will use this argument that the personal is political. You're sleeping with the enemy and, and that kind of stuff. And what they're getting at is that uh, there is no front load of meaning. Everything is power. Uh, power uh, and its exercise is what politics are all about. And you know, the more uh, traditional understanding is no, no. The, the world has a creator. Uh, there are certain things that are just so we receive those things gladly, you know, as gifts, but there's still obviously a lot to do in order to determine what, you know, is the best sort of arrangement when it comes to how we live our lives together. And what should we do next? You know, should we, you know, uh, require everybody in this neighborhood to install, uh, you know, a, a common sewer system or a, a sept our set of septic systems good enough? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, we don't like get into the homes and intrude when it comes to in a classical order intrude into the to the, the minutia when it comes to the care and the education of children. Yeah, you know, a good political order will say if we if we're going to have uh, a virtuous citizenry, we need to have an educated citizenry, and uh, it's really incumbent upon parents to do their best to educate their children well and. And by the way, these are some things that really uh, are, are important to know if you're going to be a citizen in this country. But uh, when it comes to uh, who's responsible for the education of the child, in a totalitarian regime, it's the, it's the government. And in a uh, free society, a traditionally ordered society, uh, it's the parents. Which, briefly... <laughs> It makes me think of what I consider to be one of the, the best satirical treatments. This is debated, but satirical treatments of this society is Plato's Republic. Yeah. 
And some people think he was not being satirical at all. Uh-huh. But, I mean, there's a lot going on there. But when, when, he's, when he's first asked, when Socrates is asked at first, what is the ideal society, it is not anything that looks like totalitarianism. Right. It's families working right. together and, you know. But then when, when, when he's then pressed, they said, no, 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 Socrates, that's not what we're, we're talking about, a society that makes a lot of money, that becomes very wealthy. How do you get that? And then he launches into this huge explanation, which does include government education, enforced government education. I mean, all, all of these marks that, that, that one would consider for this. So when you're talking about power and the pursuit of power, I can't help but go immediately to, to Marx, because that's how he viewed all relations. I mean, he, he viewed relationships in a material fashion. Sure. Material only. So, of course, people think of him as just as a communist, but there's a lot more to what he's doing than merely taking away from the rich and, and spreading property evenly. Yeah, it, he wasn't Robin Hood. And he wasn't even your mom saying, share your pizza. Right, right. <laughs> you know, when people say stupid stuff like, communism is a wonderful idea, it's just the implementation that's been the problem. No, you don't understand communism at all if you say something stupid like that. So what is communism? Well, communism is based on a set of, uh, of convictions about the world that we live in. Uh, and there are certain... Uh, things that are givens in the mind of Marx, but in also people who consider themselves Marxists. And one of those givens is that, as you noted, we live in a meaningless world, that the world doesn't come front-loaded with meaning, that it's essentially uh, without form and void, and without a purpose, an end, a telos. Neither of those things are compatible with the Christian faith. But... Uh, weirdly, some Christians think that you can use Marx, you know, to further Christian uh, programs or, you know, values or policies or whatever. Yeah, I've, I've run into them. But, um, so if that's the case, how do things uh, happen? Well, uh, what Marx is uh, responding to, and, met, and many of the people in the you know sort of early and mid-modern periods in philosophy they're reacting to Aristotle they're responding to Aristotle so when Aristotle explains uh, why things are the way they are he says there are basically four causes uh, two of the causes I've already mentioned the form and the end so the form you know if we're talking about a human being so there's a human nature okay there's something given uh, it's not something that we have the power to refashion uh, in the most fundamental sense. So human beings in the past uh, share a common nature with human beings in the present. But, uh, but also an end. What are human beings for? You know, and we see in Aristotle his proposed uh, you know, answer to that is happiness. Right? And then you, know, you get someone like Thomas Aquinas and says, well, that's not sufficient. You know, we need to fill that out. You know? you know, the, you know, beatific vision, you know, you know, bliss in God, you know, right? That's, that's the end. And that's completely simpatico with the Bible, you know, you know, all things are made by him and for him and so forth. So 
Now, the other two causes are the material and the efficient causes. Material is what something is made out of. So what is human being made out of? Well, human beings made out of, you know, the physical elements that we find all around us, right? Uh, and then how does that come to be, you know, formed in the way that it is? And that's the efficient cause. So the power, you know, the power to bring something to pass. So if you take away the, the forms and you take away the ends and all you're left with is matter and motion, power and stuff, then the only way you can explain kind of the, the sort of the process by which things come to be as they are is through uh, kind of the, uh, the, the, the vast sort of possible range of options. You know, when we talk about, say, um, you know, uh, things uh, that have some um, chance of coming to be, you know, uh, so we're talking about essentially chance. And then we're talking, then we're talking about uh, forces in some kind of co conflict, collision. So things come about through an agonistic process. Agonism is a term that's used uh, in philosophy to talk about things coming into being through struggle. So uh, if, you t if you keep those things in mind, then go to Marx. And so Marx, is, Marx says that what we have is we've got in the course of human history uh, forces uh, in violent conflict with each other, social classes. So social classes are understood purely in terms of uh, their, the material goods that they possess and the power that those classes possess. And then you have conflict. And when those conflicts are resolved, you have a kind of a new situation, and there's a kind of process that unfolds over time. This is kind of the Hegelian spirit, you know, in Marx. But uh, what Marx did is he gave his whole system a kind of pseudo-scientific gloss. So what he referred to as scientific dialectic, you know, which is this idea that um, that there is a kind of there is a kind of end in the order of things. And what is it? Well, it's entropy. It's heat death. So when a society's goods are evenly distributed and its power is evenly distributed, there's a kind of scientific uh, resolution to this process. And what that means is everybody is absolutely sort of flat. Everything's kind of flattened. Now, uh, in the actual physical world, when that occurs, we, we have a name for that. Death. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a human body is a hierarchy, you know. Um, a, a human society is also necessarily a hierarchy. And this is what the, the totalitarians will never come clean on, particularly those with a Marxist bent. They, they, uh, they'll talk about, you know, this is like a, just a phase, you know. You know <laughs> to get to this, you know, ideal, idyllic vision that is, you know, there for us to enjoy in the future. But you never get there. Um, and so, anyway, I've kind of rambled on and on, but <laughs> but that's that's how uh, the Marxist uh, program works, and that's also why uh, you know, in sort of a Marxist way of thinking, ethics uh, really has a kind of secondary role; it's not primary. So, whatever uh, kind of justifies this process is 
perfectly fine. Um, it's in accord with it. It doesn't call it into question. It doesn't, it's not a basis to judge it. Uh, because there is no basis for ethics apart from material relations, there's no transcendent source of meaning or truth to which, by, you know, to which you can appeal or point to and say, you know, what you did was, when you wiped out all those Ukrainians was wrong. You know, <laughs> you know. So, but anyway, uh, there you go. That's that's what you have with those guys. So the alternative, then, is well. Let me back up before we get to the alternative. We are not. We don't have to worry about classic Marxism coming, say, to the United States. Uh, the only places I know where you can find true Marxists are usually universities and probably in their uh, just almost retirement stage right. at this point. But there is a type of uh, that kind of the, the American spirit of uh, Marxism, sometimes called cultural Marxism, that does continue now that, that we deal with. So how does that inform the way people are doing things now? Yeah, there are important ways in which uh, contemporary scene, economically but also socially, uh, shares certain things in common with the Marxist outlook. For example, uh, intrinsic meaning is something that's lost on most people. Um, we got some guys outside with a uh, sounds like a, a leaf blower. Yes, they are, they are not Marxist, I don't think. <laughs> right, but well, what that what that implies then is that in the same way that Marx Marxist historically felt uh, or believed that the world was more or less uh, subject to our power to shape and form in the ways that we would like. Uh, we uh, in the contemporary West agree now. So uh, you very rarely hear anyone make arguments based upon sort of human nature anymore. Or uh, uh, what, because nature is understood merely to be a purposeless process. Uh, there's, no, there's no intrinsic meaning to being a human being. So like a person like Peter Singer, you know, teaches at Princeton, well, you know, he's famous for having said something to the effect, this is a paraphrase, can't remember the, the way he said it precisely, but more or less a pig is a boy and a boy is a pig. In other words, we're just talking about kind of biological machinery. And what can we see in a boy that would make him, uh, would distinguish him from a pig? They just, they share a number of things. They, you know, got, you know, certain biological processes that are occurring within them. Um, Instead of, say, the classical understanding, which would see in the human beings something that was unique to human nature that would distinguish human beings from other creatures, you know, rationality, things of that sort. So uh, many, uh, you know, uh, well-educated people, I, I can't call them intelligent, but they're well-educated, uh, look at the world this way. And consequently... Uh, there's also a, a, a strong emphasis on uh, equality, um, which means that anyone's uh, kind of project uh, doesn't have any necessarily 
better basis f to justify itself than anyone else's. So if nothing means anything, and we're all considered equal, that means your maybe desire to, to uh, realize your lifelong dream of being a, a lion you know, it's something that, that, you know, is just as good as somebody's, you know, lifelong dream of, you know, building a rocket ship to go to Mars or someone's lifelong dream to have a family with, and children. You know, we, we can't make, you know, uh, in, you know, meaningful distinctions between these things because there's no intrinsic meaning to anything. So we're in a position where we have to honor everybody's, you know, desires, uh, projects equally. You want me to respect your desire to have a wife and children? Well, respect my desire to be Simba. <laughs> you know, you know, you may say I'm crazy, but I think you're crazy. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, so, but because there's there's no way to adequately judge. Right. So, then wrapping up, what are and I know you've not finished the book yeah. yet, right. but. What are some things that people can do, and I know you, you, you've already hinted at this a little bit, what are some things people can do to go against this general spirit of the age? Yeah, I think the first thing that you need to do is recognize the, the thumbscrews. What are the thumbscrews? So there are a lot of thumbscrews that are employed. And one of the reasons why we're so disappointed with some of our leaders is that they are experiencing the thumbscrews. <laughs> they're, they're, they're on the rack. And, you know, they're being forced to, uh, uh, under, you know, various uh, forms of uh, pressure, uh, renounce things they believe in or, or get quiet about those things or whatever, or try to find some third way, you know. <laughs> Or we can all be happy. Uh, but so it, it, learn to, you know, identify the thumbscrews. And then I think there are some spiritual disciplines that you need to develop. Uh, one of those is, uh, you know, so we live in a, a world where people talk about cancer culture. Basically, it's social death. So uh, we use social media to kill people socially, uh, cancel them so that they can't work where they've been employed can't bank where they banked, that kind of stuff. So the, the, the thing we need to learn to do in terms of spiritual discipline is cancel ourselves first. So if we can learn to, to, to uh, do that, and what does that mean? Well, uh, think about the worst case scenario and accept it. Just accept it. Just say, okay, this could happen to me uh, unless I go along with these folks. Uh, and then if you die inwardly uh, to the social environment that you're afraid of losing contact with then you're free so it's a it's a way of freeing yourself from the thumbscrews getting back to our earlier comments about the sanitary approach that we take to things today now maybe things will no longer be sanitary after a time and they actually will come for you and take you away to a concentration camp well then you'll need some other disciplines <laughs> But in the until but then. until then this then then the, the the then at that point we're just dealing with about you know concerning practical matters how do I survive you know and that kind of thing and uh, you need other people you need people that you rely on you know, and so you kind of build it out from there. So that reminds me a little bit of um, Ernst Younger. 
the German. Yep. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, yeah. He was the Nazi officer who was right. stationed in Paris, right? Yes. Right. Uh, and but his he was book, like half part of Nazi. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, he was not. He fought for the Nazis. Sure. He himself was not a Nazi. He disagreed. He survived. He was a German, and he was a soldier. He, yeah, he was a patriot. Yeah. He, he, he loved his country, but he wrote The Forest Passage mm-hmm. about how, about the, the mindset that men needed to live in this future totalitarian society that he saw coming. He was predicting in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Because he saw the way that that technical man was going. Yeah. That that people viewed technology in the 1950s as having won the war for the Allies. And he saw that as being the driving force that everyone would pursue from then on out. So... And this gets to another important boundary line that classical thought uh, maintained that you don't see with totalitarianism. And that's the, the boundary between the human and the machine. Hmm. Yes. Which gets us into a whole different conversation with <laughs> transhumanism and stuff. Yes, which is which does seriously deserve its own consideration. But I know you and the, the podcast guys have talked about this a few times, so I would refer our listeners to some of your conversations there. But uh, so when is when do you expect the book? Uh, well, I know you may not know when it'll be published. Well, when do you uh, hope that things will uh, be out? Well, my contract says it's due in February. <laughs> so usually we're talking three to six months after you get the manuscript in that everything is edited and ready to roll. Okay. So you have that, and then, of course, you have some other works uh, yeah. coming up as well. Yeah, working on a on a commentary on the book of Acts, which is kind of on the shelf at the moment because of the pressure. I'm under the thumbscrews. <laughs> and then I've got a couple of children's books. One is a young adult book that I know a lot of people have been waiting for the sequel for a long, long time. And I thought I had it done. <laughs> I thought I had it done, but then the editors wanted me to do some more work. So this is like the third time they've sent it back to me to do some more work. So, I mean, I get their point, you know, there's some things that, that, uh, that are, are, are worth revisiting in the manuscript, but, you know, I'm, I'm under the gun with these other projects, too. And then I've got a children's picture book that I chip away at every now and then. Okay, but yes, for, for those who don't know, Chris hey, has done really good work as an artist as well. So, uh, so are, you gonna, are you illustrating that? Yep. Good. So we'll be, you'll be able to see those in time. Yeah, the... the the story was the easy part. It's drawing all the drawings. <laughs> it takes a long time. All right. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us today. This has been really helpful, good things to think about, and we will look forward to your book coming out hopefully within the next year. Yep. Thank you, Matt.